mentions the least to the greatest. You see the relationship in this passage, that they will know the Lord, not just teach their neighbors about him. And you also see sacrifice. You see that God is going to forgive their iniquity. And we know that God does that because of the sacrifice of the people. So we see some of the features of the covenant. And this is what we learn in the Old, I'm sorry, in the New Testament is called the New Covenant. This new covenant that Jesus himself speaks about um, in the Gospels, specifically in the book of Luke. And he does it uh, at the communion meal. James, if you want to go to the next slide. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is having what we know as the Last Supper. It's communion. It's what we do every week here at Mac. And he's explaining to them what the new covenant is. He explains that the bread that they're eating is his body broken for them. And that the juice, the wine that they are drinking uh, is Jesus' blood shed for them. And look how he describes the blood in uh, Luke 2. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is this new covenant? Is it an abandonment of the old covenant? Is it just a total uh, uh, forgetting of the old one? We know that's not true because of what we know about covenants, that God is going to be faithful to uphold his end of the deal. So look at Matthew 5, 7, 5 to 7. This is a, a famous passage called the Sermon on the Mount. And all it is over and over again is Jesus teaching about the new covenant. Jesus says, I have heard, you have heard it said, and then follows that up with, but I tell you. For example, he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That retaliation is how we do things. But then he comes back and says, no, no, no. If you even think an angry thought about your brother, you are just as bad as a murderer. And he does this with so many other issues. He does this with lust. He does this with giving. He does this with prayer. And he's not abandoning the covenant. He is getting back to the heart of the covenant. He's getting back to what the covenant was supposed to be about in the first place. This isn't a new covenant in the sense of a second one. It's, it's a return to what the covenant was supposed to be. And if you're not convinced of that, look at how we see those three defining features that were in Exodus also played out in the New Testament. For example, look at the subject of order. We still have an order. The difference now is that all of us are a royal priesthood. We're not stratified like the people were in Exodus 24, where we have different categories and different groups. We, in fact, have one mediator, Jesus, and as a consequence, all of us can enter the throne room of God. We also see sacrifice in the new covenant. Sacrifice not in the sense of animals, though, but our lives. Paul talks about it in Romans, Romans 11 and 12. He appeals to Christians, not that we sacrifice animals, but that we sacrifice our decisions, where we live, what we do for work, how we spend our money, how we treat each other, how we speak, how we act, how we care for our neighbors, that we don't keep some of those things selfishly and give others to God. We lay all those decisions, all those resources, all of our actions as humans at the foot of the cross and say, God, my life is a sacrifice to you. So sacrifice is clearly in the new covenant as well. And then relationship. And this is powerful, family. Remember back in Exodus 24, how the people said that they saw God, when really what appears to be is that they saw the space beneath God's feet? Look at the new covenant. Look at how in John 13, God himself, in the form of man, takes off his outer robe, approaches disciples who are going to disown him and eventually betray him, takes their sandals off and cleans their dirty 
smelly, bloody feet. The God that the Hebrews could barely see in the Old Testament, they could see the ground beneath his feet, is now washing the feet of his disciples. So we can see these features and we can see how that covenant that we've been studying in Exodus 24 connects to communion and it connects to our world today. Even look at the meal itself. James, if you want to go to the next slide. In Exodus 24, what's happening? How do they consecrate this covenant? We see the elders and the Hebrew people eating and drinking and communing with God. And what do we see in the new covenant? We see the disciples eating and drinking and beholding God. We see this continuation. Jesus is making a clear effort to show that what's happening in Exodus is what's happening now. We are continuing this pledge that God will be faithful to uphold his promises, that he will be their God and we will be his people. And I'm parking on this, guys, because the reality of this, the significance of this is about one thing, and that's God's faithfulness. As the people of God, we are defined by the faithfulness of God. At the end of the day, what we are ourselves, the fact that we're even in this room, is the fruit of God's faithfulness. We would not be here as followers of Christ if God had given up on his end of the covenant, right? We would not be able to worship in this room if God had said, you know what, I'm through with these guys. No, God faithfully bore our disobedience and our disloyalty, and you and you and you and me, we're here today because of that. And so as, as I want you guys to recognize that, I want to move to, to the third and final section of this sermon, and that's communion and our commitment. Because if we recognize the fact that God is faithful and we recognize that we are the fruit of his faithfulness, I think there's a few responses that we need to seriously consider as the people of God. And I want to give you four commitments or challenges or, or responses that are very practical, that I want you as our family here at Mac to to really consider. And the first challenge is to love God's church. The one thing that we see in common throughout this covenant is God's faithfulness to his people, you and me, the people of God. And when Jesus gets the opportunity to pray for the church, the future church, not just himself, not just his disciples, right before he goes to the cross, he prays for us in the book of John chapter 17. And the one thing that he focuses on in that passage uh, is this theme of unity. And James, if you want to go to the next slide. Look how he prays. He's praying that we as future believers would be unified together in the same way that he is unified to God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He could have prayed for so many things. He could have prayed for persecution. He could have prayed for strong leaders. He could have prayed for money. He could have prayed for big churches. He prayed for unity. Unity among us as Christians. And now think about the New Testament. Think about the letters that Paul is writing, right, to all these different churches that are springing up. The book of Acts, one of the major conflicts in that book is a conflict over an issue of unity. Jews and Gentiles not being able to get along. Peter making the case that maybe Jews and Gentiles should be separated and being confronted by Paul saying, no, we need to be unified as a church. We see this also uh, in the book of Galatians. We see how Paul has to tell the Galatian church, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are one in Christ. 
We see this uh, in the book of Philippians, where again, Paul, chapter 2, is exhorting the church, when you're in community, think on whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely. Don't look for the weakness in your brother and sister at church. Think about good things, grace spot in their life. Look for ways to lift them up, not tear them down. And then in the book of Ephesians, we see Paul exhorting the Ephesian church to bear with one another, to put up with those difficult times, those hard times, those situations where we're just not getting along. And then he closes the book with this discussion on spiritual warfare and and fighting with the armor of God. And and that's what I want to focus on here. Because I think if you guys are, are, are paying attention, you've been here for a while, you know that spiritual warfare is a real issue in this community. And the reason for that is because the enemy is seeking to destroy that one thing that gives us power as a church, and that's our unity. We know this from 1 Peter. If you want to go to that slide, James. Look at how the devil is described here. This is is Peter speaking, the apostle of Jesus. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are be experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The enemy, our enemy, the devil, is working around the world, prowling like a lion, seeking who he can devour, seeking to create disunity in the church. And I think we see that in our church all the time. We see these manifestations of that kind of spiritual warfare. And I know that's kind of a lofty topic, so let me ground it a little bit. When I say spiritual warfare, that could be death or physical suffering in your life. That could be resurfacing doubt about God and who he is. That could be trauma or or drama in your family. That could be temptation that just won't leave you alone. That could be isolation that you're experiencing from community because you're you're pulling back and you don't want people in your life. That could be defensiveness. That could be greed. That could be whatever it is that the enemy is trying to use in your life to separate you from the community. And in the five years that Laura and I have been here as members and now as an elder, we have seen this over and over again. We have seen spiritual warfare just cause so much damage in our church. Look around you guys. Look in this room. I I mean, I actually want you to look around. These, These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They love God. They love their neighbors. This is your family. It is so easy in conflict, in frustration, to lash out or to draw back and to not believe the best about the people in this room. Don't do that, family. I'm convinced that this church is on the front lines of what God is trying to do in this world. I'm convinced because we're trying to preach the gospel, we are soaking our church in discipleship, and because we are trying to do something at a racial and ethnic level that most people don't want to do or even talk about. And I'm convinced that as a result of that, the enemy is seeking to divide us all the time, and we are constantly under attack spiritually. We don't have to be afraid of that, though. And I want you to go to the next slide, James. Look at how Paul talks about spiritual warfare here in 1 Corinthians 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, 
They have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Family, we don't have to be afraid in these times of spiritual warfare. And and I know that right now in this room, there are people who are struggling in relationships that need to reconcile. And there are people who are struggling to believe the best about others. There are people who know as they're listening to this part of the message that this is an area of struggle for them. And I want you to know that you don't have to submit to the attacks of the enemy. That through your testimony, through rallying together as a unified body, we can defeat the spiritual attacks of the enemy. We can have the testimony that the church had in Revelation 12. Look at how John describes the church here in Revelation. He says, For the accuser of our brothers, we know that's the devil, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Family, I pray that when we encounter spiritual warfare, and if you haven't yet, you will, that you would not shrink back, that you would not lash out, but that you would rally in a unified way with the other brothers and sisters in this room, that you would love God's church. The second challenge I want to put out there is to honor God's holiness. If you look in that passage in Exodus 24, we see that there's an immense reverence for the holiness and majesty of God. We see that uh, just clear as day in the passage. We also see it throughout the Bible. We see it in the response of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6, where he is given a vision of God, God in in all his majesty. And Isaiah doesn't ask for things. He doesn't start singing. He acknowledges how sinful and broken he is. He falls to his knees. And all he can do is say, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And family, sin is a big deal, especially in the eyes of a holy God. And we're told in Romans not to coddle sin, not to try and control it. We are told to put sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I bring this up, family, because I think it's hard to argue that this passage isn't about the holiness of God. And I think it's fair to say that some of us can be a little, uh, as Sam said last week, a little glib with sin, Glib's a great word, isn't it? Isn't that just a great word? It's all about just saying, man, you're being too casual about something serious. And frankly, family, I think we can be a little glib about sin. Worse than that, we can even tease or ridicule people who are trying to be serious about it. Whether it's the things they're watching, it's the words they say, the stuff they do. As Christians, sometimes we even make fun of people who are trying to pursue righteousness. I want to challenge some of you guys in this room who, who maybe are, are, are hearing that and are feeling uncomfortable. What does it look like for you to take sin seriously? Not because sin is such a big thing, but because God is so big and so holy. And that at the end of the day, we are the people of God. That's some of us. Some of us need to hear that. Some of us need to hear that we're being a little too glib with sin and with the holiness of God. On the other end of the spectrum is the third challenge I want to put out there. And that's that some of us in this room need to accept God's grace. Yeah, there are definitely some of us in here who look at the holiness of God and are too casual about it. But there are others in this room that I know for a fact 
see their sin, they, they embrace it, they accept it, and they are just paralyzed and broken over it. And I'm here to tell you, family, for those of you who are struggling in that way, the covenant shows you you don't need to feel that way anymore. Look at the old covenant. God enters into a covenant with people that 40 days later are going to break his heart. Look at the new covenant. Jesus is washing the feet of Judas, a man who's about to betray him to his death. Family, the sin that you have does not impact God's love for you. We serve a God who is willing to extend open arms to you no matter what you have done. Look at how the author of Hebrews talks about God in chapter 4. He says that Jesus, the Son of God, is someone who can sympathize with us. He's not a distant God. He's gone through all the suffering and the confusion that we have. And that because of that, at the end of the passage, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Yes, some of us are glib about the holiness of God, but some of us need to know and trust that God is a good God. And that despite what you've done, he loves you. He wants to adopt you into his family family, permanently for good. Some of you have read the book Pilgrim's Progress. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, it's a powerful allegory, and, it's, and by allegory, I mean a story of symbols, right? It uses symbols to tell the story of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, the main character, his name is Christian, all right? It's a pretty straightforward allegory. One of the first things that a Christian encounters once he hears the good news about the celestial city where a good king is, is he encounters something called the sloth of despond. And the sloth of despond is this river of mud and quicksand where many, like Christian, hear the good news, hit the sloth of despond on their way, and turn back because they just can't do it anymore. It's too tiring, it's too exhausting, it's too dirty, and they give up. And Christian is about to give up until he realizes that someone has sent him a man named Help. And he's not able to get out on his own. He actually is pulled out by help sent by God. Now, that's powerful. When you think about quicksand, the reality is with quicksand, the more you struggle, the more you fight it, the more you sink. And sometimes I think when we're in this season of doubt and and despair, we've spent so much time struggling, we don't spend enough time asking God for help. And God wants to help. And when you get caught in quicksand like this, survival tip for those of you who ever get caught in quicksand, the best thing you can do is not struggle. The best thing you can do is wait for help and call for help. Family, for those of you who are struggling in this way, I want to encourage you, don't struggle. God wants to accept you and embrace you and love you. You don't need to struggle. You simply need to acknowledge his faithfulness. And then the last thing, family, briefly, this last challenge I want to offer to you is to tell God's story. Consider everything we've heard this morning, right? God in his great mercy, extends permanent faithfulness to his people. Permanent faithfulness. And he's giving us a chance to be truly human, to be in community with him and in community with one another. Something that came out of the Elder Retreat this weekend uh, was a principle that was reiterated over and over again. Uh, It was something that Matthew reminded our elder board of as we continue to wrestle with, man, how do we equip you guys? How do we care for you guys? What does it look like to lead this church and and to see you grow in Christ. 
And absolutely, there are logistical things that we can do. How many times does Mac Life meet? You know, how often should we meet for discipleship? And those things matter. But at the end of the day, Matthew's point was that our obligation as the leaders of this church is very simple. Our job is to plant the seed of the gospel in your life. Then our job is to make sure that you're being discipled and that that seed is being grown and cultivating and it's germinating and it becomes something, some kind of fruit. And then we trust God to bring the fruit in your life, to, to make you think, man, you know what? I should go talk to that neighbor. Man, I should uh, pray for the members of my Mac group. I should, you know, give Josh a call because we haven't met in a while. At the end of the day, it's the gospel. It's meditating and dwelling in the gospel that produces that kind of change. And I'm convinced that if we think about the things and we consider the things and we discuss the things that we were learning about this morning, I'm convinced that we won't be able to help but tell the story of God. So I challenge you, family, as we close, please consider these things. Consider what it means that God is a faithful God, that he entered into a covenant with us knowing that we would fail and that yet he still set us apart for deep intimacy, and that as his people now, we have the opportunity to tell that story to others. Let's pray. God, I'm just blown away. I would never enter into a covenant of any kind. I'm too scared, too foolish, and too much of a deceptive and dishonest person, and I think so lowly of other people. I would never do that. I would never put myself at that kind of risk. And yet, God, you had the most to risk, and yet you were willing to give it all up so that we might live. God, would you just bury that truth in our hearts so deep? Would you force us to wrestle with what that means? Lord, for those in the room right now who have never heard the gospel before and are thinking, man, I want to be a part of this covenant people, would you give them the courage Uh, to to speak out and to speak to their neighbor here this morning? And would you give the rest of us eyes and ears to to see and listen for those opportunities? Lord, we acknowledge that you are so faithful and that we could never be faithful. And we praise you for that and we worship you for that and we honor you for that. We love you, God. Amen.